2: Welcome to Better Than Life, where comedians come to talk Red Dwarf, episode by episode. I'm John, old-school fan on my 1st rewatch in decades.
3: And I'm Fergus, your co-host and big-time big fan, big-time. We're joined by our producer, Alex. This time we're doing Series 2, Episode 4, Stasis Leak, with David Reed. Let's take a voice to Trip Out City. It's a show about a man who's lost three million years in space. His company and A fussy
2: robot and a ship that's got senile We love jokes and sci-fi stuff, that's why It's better than life Our guest this episode is playwright and comedian, Mr David Reed. He is the writer and performer of massively successful sketch and character comedy, both live and on BBC Radio 4 as well as a string of historical comedy plays, many of which you can get your ears around on streaming platforms. He's also an acclaimed comedy improviser, all of which means he is primed to have his brains picked clean about the greatest ongoing 20th century British sci-fi sitcom of all time, Red Dwarf. David, welcome aboard
4: the Better Than Life podcast. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. Talking about Red Dwarf in public. I feel a bit strange about it, but it's going to be good. I was saying only recently that Red Dwarf seems to be a uh, sitcom that unites a lot of comedy professionals who don't speak in public in case the kids who used to do sport at school here (laughs) (laughs) and they get beaten up. No, I absolutely love it. I'm very happy to be
2: here. Where did it all start for you, David? What was the first exposure to Red Dwarf for you?
4: So I watched it on TV when it first came out. I had a conversation with my dad only this week, actually. He uh, said he omdenard over whether Red Dwarf was appropriate for a six-year-old to watch. And he thank, thank God he, he decided, yes, it was absolutely fine. <laughs> so it's influenced a lot of what I've done from then on in, trying desperately to combine adventure and comedy. But I also confided in him that he probably wasted his time Deliberating over that because my mum had already let me watch The Shining a year ago. By that point, <laughs> no, I so um, my dad recorded it all onto VHS early doors, and then I watched it again and again and again. Was he pre-screening the episodes on VHS before he'd show them to you, or were you watching them live and then re-watching the recording? I would have been six, seven years old when the first two series came out. So I, I have no idea. I mean, I don't think I would have had a a concept of my dad screening stuff. He exists. Only to serve. Uh, That is the the (laughs) six-year-old's opinion of the world. It was one of those sitcoms that people of any age could enjoy it. I think it's got that appeal. It's from that pre-Simpsons era, certainly in this country. Early on, Simpsons was only on Sky 1, and you had to Mm. have a Sky dish in order to watch it, whereas Red Dwarf was on Terrestrial. But that, that thing of, like, even if a joke goes over your head... You know, you don't, you're you're learning what everyone else is laughing about and you want to catch up. So I I definitely had that with sitcoms growing up that I feel they were part of my education in terms of how to communicate with other people. I still remember my dad defining the word infallible for me
3: out of this episode.
4: Right, okay. I probably, irritatingly, uh, said to my parents on a regular basis, what is it? (laughs) About anything... Who hasn't? Anything I didn't understand. Of course. Because Kat is the child in the room. (laughs) Thinking back to that that time in my life and sort of opening old files, I've not opened in a very long time, but... My mum used to teach yoga for pregnant women in our in our living room. So me and my dad were banished to the TV room. And on Wednesday nights when my mum taught, it would be Star Trek The Next Generation, which I think is massively linked to Red Dwarf just in terms of, you can chart the episodes that Star Trek do and then Red Dwarf do like a year later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Camille is literally the name of the chameleon sexy woman in Red Dwarf in Star Trek. But, Sorry. Both, uh, but that's tricky, isn't it? Both creators love a pun. Well, exactly. Maybe it's a common thought rather than a direct rip-off, but I've just felt that you had that common language.
2: David, I want to circle back to, to the beginnings of your fandom, but I've got to ask, did you stick... With Red Dwarf,
4: the whole way, one hundred percent. I've watched all of the new ones, Back to Earth and Beyond. I mean, my wife is a big fan as well, so that that's helped for sort of putting it on of an evening to to see what where they're up to and what they're doing. I've been lucky enough to work with a few of the cast as well, which has been ah. amazing. There's some of the people that I still sort of feel a bit starstruck by. I bet, yeah. Like I, I uh, I'll drop a few, drop a few names. go on, go go on then. then. Yeah, I'll it's tell fine. you. It's fine. I do all of Kevin Eldon's stuff on the radio and when he had his TV series as well and got to meet Hattie Hayridge through doing that. Actually, no, I'd worked with her before on an improv tour. Now I come to think of it, I have to tell you this story. Sorry, you've opened my Red Dwarf file in my head. Um, (laughs) So I I did a tour of a show called Totally Looped, which was live overdubbing of movies with the sound off in front of an audience, but you weren't prepped what the clips were going to be. And we were told, you may sort of make mistakes or talk when you're not supposed to be talking, but the cardinal rule is just, if you don't know what to say, just say something, make a noise, so that when their mouth is flapping, you're making a noise. And Hattie, they got as a sort of star stunt casting on this tour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and bless her, improv, improv is not her. It's not her background, you know. She has quite a languorous pace of delivery yeah. as well. So nearly every clip that Hattie did, she'd be playing a character, and she would. She took their advice literally. She just went, oh. Ooh, ee, ah, oh. Yes about <laughs> the entire clip whenever her character was speaking and occasionally a word would come to her and she'd just go oh thank you
3: <laughs>
4: that was that was the entire thing and to be fair it's an incredibly hard thing to do when you're just suddenly given a clip from Jaws and you have to sort of fill in whenever your character is speaking but I met her and got to know her from, from doing that and then she was filming on It's Kevin Kevin Eldon's sketch show that uh, we did together and I literally arrived in the studio and the runner was about to offer me a coffee when clearly someone had said something in her earpiece and she went, I'm so sorry. Can you find your way from here? I've got and she just disappeared. I was left in the <laughs> corridor of a, a studio I didn't know. I was like, what is happening? It turned out at the exact moment I'd arrived, Hattie Hayridge had walked backwards. In one of those green screen studios, I don't know if you know the term, but infinity curve, where it curves Mm. so you can't see the edge. But She'd walked back, fallen over, and snapped her ankle. In the exact exact moment I arrived in the studio. So bless her. She filmed all of her things, just head and shoulders, like a week later in a full cast. But she's lovely. She's an absolutely lovely person and is brilliant. Yeah, and two, two stories of her being very sensible and uh, <laughs> aware of her surroundings. I oh, know, she's as mad as a box of frogs, but she's very charming <laughs> with it. I actually did a gig with both Hollies. It was wow. both Hollies and Michael Winslow Jones from Police Academy. Oh, yeah.
3: Sound effects. Great. Yeah,
4: during a World Cup. So we were all sat in the courtyard outside this theatre, me and the two Hollies, me not knowing how to talk to them, whilst Michael Winslow did whatever he does smoke on the water or whatever he's doing on his own, (laughs) was just piped through. As we were watching the football. That oh, that's was lovely. Absolutely lovely.
3: That sounds great. Yeah. It's really hard though, isn't it? To, to meet those people oh, it's you've, impossible. you've known deeply for 30 years.
4: <laughs> Every ounce of your being is trying to be a peer of theirs, not yep. a mm. fan of theirs. And so you're second guessing whether you're allowed to talk about Red Dwarf or not, which they must be around a lot. Yeah. I had a very a wonderful experience with Danny John Jules, but he wouldn't recognize me from Adam because I used to do a, a live band karaoke show. It's how my wife and I met. She was the bassist. I was the drummer where we'd invite comedians on. And Ben Miller from Armstrong and Miller would always appear just out of nowhere carrying his plastic shopping bag come up on stage, still holding the bag, weirdly, do a song and then disappear forever. And we'd, we'd have a 24-piece orchestra in this show as well. Wow. And then one day he arrived with Danny John Jules and sang a duet. But no, that was amazing to drum for Danny John Jules because he's, he's yeah. got a set of pipes on him.
3: Yes, he has. He's, he's still releasing singles,
4: though. Like, he's still releasing music. Yeah. Did he give you a bit of hot shoe as well? Was he moving? No, but he was dressed very coolly. Yeah, like, he just looked awesome. I have a photo from of him on stage that night on my uh, sitting room wall. Oh, thing. fantastic. Oh. Anyway, that's my slightly embarrassing I don't have really a connection with Red Dwarf stories out of the way. I did go to a recording once. I got to know the DOP of it. And so I went, I was in the audience for Twentica, which is one of the new right. ones. Mm. and that was amazing we got to me and my wife got to sit in Starbuck and she broke it how did she What did she press the wrong buttons it's just a very flimsy set <laughs> she just leant on something and it snapped off also I had it on good authority from the DOP that Robert now had his lines piped in through an earpiece so he didn't have to learn them so that's why all of his was slightly behind and then they'd just edit out the gaps. <laughs> And uh, Chris Barry was reading all of his off uh, post-it notes on Starbug, which is why Rimmer's always very interested in the navigation console. I felt for the actors because literally Doug Naylor had rewritten whole pages the night before and just handed it to them. Yeah, but this is also the era that he was also
3: directing. Yes, yes. And was sole exec producer on it, I think, as well. And that is
4: why he was allowed to do this, I think. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) TV was evolving into something with new cameras and new ways of filming mm. things. And uh, Chris Barry was left behind in the old way and he was doing it massive. Yeah. But Rimmer and Britas, there's a lot of Chris Barry in Alan Partridge, I think. Yeah. It's a point in the, you know, the history of British comedy is it's not this weird little side spur, actually you know i think it's massively significant
3: brit always felt a little too much like they were trying to create a classic british sitcom yeah,
4: character i agree of the old school as well you know the the template they set out in series 1 and 2 of red dwarf is is such a complex uh, loser who thinks he's a winner that like that is that is always the funniest character in anything yeah. That's Brent. That's Partridge. That's everything that people have loved since. You know, that's Hancock. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. Marcus, yeah. You're right. now I think I think Rimmer is probably the best sitcom character from this show. Uh, but I I love them all. But you know, I think he's he's arguably the lead because he's the
2: most interesting. Does that mean he's the best objectively, as well as being your favourite, or do you have a different? favorite character I
4: don't know cuz it's a it's a gang I don't I don't like thinking about them separately I I I've, I've, mm. I've often thought you know I've always identified with Dave Lister more but because you're supposed to Yeah and I think growing up I wanted to be Lister but always had a sneaking suspicion that parts of me were Rimmer and I think that's, <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably the appeal Lister is is so sort of laid back and chilled about everything, and yet weirdly, they they sometimes play that he's an idiot, but he's often really erudite and knowledgeable and philosophical and all the rest, you know. And it's because they uh, they cast a poet and lent into that, I think. Mm. And I think that gives I think that gives his everyman a real nice flavor that you don't get in a lot of sitcoms, you know. They're a great team. I think I think it, it. They're all there, you know. All of the archetypes set out by uh, the ancient Greeks and then A.A. A. Milne um, are all there in that, uh, in that Lister is Winnie the Pooh, let's be honest. He's he, Instead of honey, it's curry, but he's, he's, uh, he's a bear of very little brain. Um, and Rimmer is a really uptight um, sort of crossover between Piglet and Rabbit, to be honest. And Cat is Tigger, quite obviously. <laughs> Holly is definitely Eeyore you know it's all there
2: as a 6 year old was it the existential questions about humanity and the nature of uh, of what
4: it is to be human that that really hooked you or was it something else arguably it's more sci-fi in series 1 and 2 and then fades or, or maybe starkly in series 3 actually turns into space opera you yes. know it's it's more it, conceptual it, isn't it in the first couple yeah, of series yeah it's it's trying to be more uh, fun and more and bring more people with it i mean the first two of ver- the first two series are very much um here's a sci-fi concept, let's write v- humans going through that. Like, they, they don't yeah. lean into the sci-fi, uh, you know, how do we reverse the polarity back to the future of it all, really, at all. They they just, uh, Rimmer and Lister react to what is happening to them um, and do long speeches like this is a play, which is very much the old sitcom mould, you know, as I say, before the cameras uh, became lighter, um, easier to carry around. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love series one and two, like lots of people, for some Red Dwarf fans, it starts in series three. Um, and I'm, uh, no, I'm not having that. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm meandering around too much. I'm just excited. Someone's talking to me about Red Dwarf, to be honest. Could you pinpoint a favorite episode or is that too hard? That's incredibly difficult. I could probably tell you the one I watch the most. Yeah. Probably Justice. Justice. It's because it's a character uh, crunch point of them ripping Rimmer's personality apart to save him. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think that's a glorious conceit, and it's all leading up to that point. And the idea of the justice field is just really, really (laughs) fun, both sci-fi device and comedic device. I mean, and that's when it's at its best, is when they manage to find something that is both. question we ask everybody and it's fiendish if just suppose they were going to reboot red dwarf who would you cast can we do the the necessary caveats first that it's always a bad idea and it was of its time so the idea of making it now blah 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 blah, blah.
2: yeah that, that's fine
4: uh, i think an american movie franchise would be where i'd go with it lister is the hardest one to recast because they just ended up writing Craig Charles, right? Hmm. The fact the fact he's from Liverpool is intrinsic to the character. Yeah. You know? And so you go, well, could Stephen Graham play it? No. No, yeah. well, God. <laughs> like, that doesn't that doesn't work. And so I think who I sort of went, I could see him. Also, schlub is not a common character trait anymore. I think we got too many early Mm. 2000s films about grown men who haven't grown up yet and people just got saturated by it. And so now everyone's sort of a bit more go-getting and, you know, they go to the gym and they've got their life together. So it's harder to cast people who are that type. But someone who I think still does occupy that type is Tracy Morgan. Oh, wow. Um, That's really interesting (laughs) casting. And then I need somebody who's going to play... As big as Tracy Morgan, and I'm I'm in two minds about my Rimmer. I I would say, it it's I think I'm gonna go Bob Odenkirk. Oh yeah, as Rimmer. Although my my second choice is Will Arnett. Both um, great. Rimmer is fine as long as he's utterly uh, full of himself, and then reality tears him down. So you know. actually,
3: yeah, that's great for a, a proper actor. yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. great.
4: Not that Chris Barry's not a proper. I'm quite proud of my choice for cat, um, because it's got to be somebody who is larger than than life and sort of somehow almost inhuman. And so I went for sort of like a rock star kind of figure, uh, Janelle Monet. Oh, what
3: did I oh, see her in? Wow. Really recent. Oh, uh, Glass Onion. Yes.
4: Right? Yes. Yeah. She's in Glass she's, Onion. Yes. Yeah.
3: yeah. Brilliant. 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 Brilliant.
4: Crichton is a really hard one to to cast, I think, because he's got that. Catholic guilt, but then there's something of the Jewish mother about him as well. I actually thought someone who has funny bones but can play that worried um, mother hen figure is David Schwimmer. Oh, yeah. What a cast. It's quite... I'm going to need to step up the budget a little bit. Yeah, I'm afraid we're going to have to go... But we are going to do models, guys. We're not going CGI. Uh, That's a line in the Mm. sand for me. Mm. Got, we have got to do practical <laughs> effects again. Practical <laughs> effects uh, to offset the budget. Um, I've gone for the person that I think uh, Phils Norman Lovett's shoes the best out of the current crop of uh, British comedians, and that's Joe Wilkinson. Ah, oh, lovely, <laughs> lovely. This is a great cast. I think he would only be he would be better up against uh, mm. big American yeah. names. Uh, I think it would only make him funnier. <laughs>
2: Let's dig into the episode. Fergus is going
3: to remind us what happens in the masterpiece that is Stasis League. Thanks, John. So, following a joke from Holly, better suited to 80s Rick Mail, I think, we're treated to the first proper flashback this series. It's three million years ago when the ship was fully crewed and thriving. Look, it's Captain Lister, and he still has less time for Rimmer than even Lister does. Rimmer's complaining that Lister got him tripping on Freaky Fungus and ends up insulting his way to eight weeks PD. Hang on, who was that guy who walked past Dave and Arne covering his face and speaking with Rimmer's voice? Ah, probably nothing. Five minutes in, the story starts. Lister's found a photo of himself at Kachansky's wedding, and he's assumed he's the groom surely impossible without some kind of wibbly wobbly timey wimey oh no it's fine luckily an opportunity for time travel presents itself pretty quickly a stasis leak on floor 16 the boys arrive at Nivello deck says to find an ominous green glow and they're suddenly three million years in their past they establish the rules of time travel and Rimmer and Lister work out through arguments insults and self-loathing diatribes naturally that they might be able to save someone by convincing them to go into stasis during the drive-plate catastrophe. Worth noting, it never occurs to either of them to try to save the entire crew by warning them of said catastrophe. Anywho, Rimmer sneaks into the past while Lister and Cat make their way back to the stasis leak, keeping up morale by laughing and saying yeah over and over again. We see the colour version of Rimmer trying to convince himself not to die, and then Hollister comes in, in his chicken costume, deepening Rimmer's sense that he's still as high as a kite. He reacts violently, And even though iPlayer has cut the knee to the balls, Hollister gets mighty, mighty mad. Meanwhile, Lister and the cat visit the Ganymede Holiday Inn, staffed by some truly terrifying robots, and discover that Chrissy is already married. But wait! Claire Grogan's back! Yay! And Dave is the groom, albeit with an evil twin-style beard. (laughs) Thanks to some double-double future chat, everything somehow works out great but sad. Like Lister's whole life, I guess. We end on a scene of Rimmer being driven completely insane by the presence of three Listers and another him and a floor manager wearing a big hat to cover up the fact that they'd accidentally let C.P. Grogan go before she'd filmed all of her scenes. Then a third Rimmer shows up with a pencil moustache, so we know he's evil, and Prime Rimmer's psyche explodes. And that's Stasis Leak, an episode full of Series 1 cameos. Mark Williams' Olaf Peterson returns to the show for the last time. Even Tony Hawk is back as a suitcase. So, David, (laughs) where do you want to start, or should we just go straight to the elevator
4: scene? (laughs) Oh, I love the elevator scene. I love this episode. I, I I've watched it twice since you told me I was coming on the show and uh, I went back and watched the series one episode Balance of Power as well to get a taste of the uh, list of romantic episodes. Mm, Um, Although, Thanks for the Memory is obviously a romantic one but just less Kuchansky heavy. You said something really interesting I think which I I am nostalgic for which is, you're right, they, they don't try and rescue the whole crew and the only reason for that is that Continuity is not really a thing. Like series continuity sure. isn't a thing. And it's it's more fun if we never go there. Um like this this episode never comes back. It's true. Is there still a stasis leak on floor sixteen during, say, series ten? Right. Or or yeah, exactly. Or that Lister eventually marries Kuchansky. Never seems to be a thing. And and I think that's that's because it's it's from a different time. Like if it was remade, as we've just been talking about. All of these things would be parked on a post-it note on an enormous wall in a writing yeah. room somewhere and would have to be brought back in whenever it was relevant and it would just get all a bit tight and annoying. That point aside, I think um it's really nice going back and seeing Lister react to Peterson, for instance. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. But there's there's just it's a really funny episode. As well as the the knee in the balls, I think they also Sub down the amount of man's bare ass you got to see in the shower scene as well. They reshot it, I think. Really? <laughs> really?
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah.
0: When they shot it before the studio audience the actor didn't really want to be naked and then it kind of defeated the purpose of the scene. So they went back and refilmed it after recording oh, it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow.
3: And they did do they cut a few
4: you've got a small willy lines as well. Yes. I mean, I don't know I don't know where to start on this episode because there's a lot. What I do like about Again, it's, I suppose, spending some time in the way it used to be by going back to 1988 television is that it just ends. And I love that. Like,. It just ends with all <laughs> yeah, of this unresolved mess. Yeah. And Rimmer it literally just... literally hasn't occurred to no, me. No, he just shouts, go away. And it, and we do. Um, that's... <laughs>
3: that's it. That's it. He was given the direction, why don't you walk to camera as you're saying that so you can do your own blackout as well? That's it, through your job. Yeah, that's just the yeah. end of that story. <laughs> I mean, that is
4: that is the practical version of a uh, Looney Tunes circle wipe, isn't it? Like iris wipe. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> yeah. Yeah. Zooming yeah. into Chris Barry's mouth. It's um, <laughs> true. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it, and it did blow my mind as a kid as well. Just like in in the way I suppose for young children, Back to the Future did or whatever. That you know, just playing these very simple but time travel games of who's who, and I'm talking about that final scene really, where everyone's coming in and you can play it for yeah. farce. Cat saying, "What is it?" It's still one of my all time favorite Red yeah. Dwarf moments it's the the quality of taking a sci-fi concept and then milking every possible laugh (laughs) you can get out of it like like having (laughs) a just doing they're just doing an airline sketch with more bank's in the lift but yeah but where death is is certain if if anything goes wrong like the cyanide capsule bit is brilliant yes it's It's brilliant brilliant. you know that is brilliant her performance of it as well i watched her as she went um, specifically to see whether her smile cracks at all and it doesn't, she's just the exact same Rictus grin as she goes over perfect timing, it's perfect timing I remember
3: being quite concerned for her as a kid <laughs> right, she's yeah. dead <laughs> yeah, she, she sacrificed her life to point out how other people may sacrifice theirs Yeah. And
4: <laughs> instead of just being pancaked which surely, well but you're into those dark details when you're a kid you don't go, oh well how horrible how horrible that we're laughing at that poor woman you don't because she's <laughs> in she's in control here not you she's the one who's just you know she's the one on tv yeah that's true
3: i was too busy i think yet again and this has come up every episode in this first two series it comes up a lot the esperanto so turns out esperanto for express lift is expressa lifto <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But they miss out, in the same way that they miss out the E of express, so it's a cool word that starts with X, they simply miss out the E at the start of expressa. So it becomes expressa. Uh, Yeah. Marvellous bit of like rubbish world building. It's
2: mystifying that we're not all speaking Esperanto really, isn't it? Given what we've learned about it so far. Yeah, like a language
4: (laughs) that literally no one spoke. How did that not catch on? (laughs) Another standout moment for me as well, as a kid, as in that the whole thing is just lodged in my brain permanently, is Lister's hotel corridor speech, having lost hope that he's going to marry the love of his life.
3: Why is it always wine?
4: Sensible, reliable, dependable. Yeah, Yeah, it's just, it's absolutely brilliant. And I think probably set the template for what they would try and repeat in other series, you know. It's, it's a funny episode, this one, as well. Like, it doesn't feel like a classic for some reason. I don't really even know what I mean by that. I mean, people will mention Better Than Life or Gunman of the Apocalypse or this just feels like another episode. But it's, it's fantastic. I know what you mean. Better Than Life
3: does extend our understanding of the depths of self-loathing that Rimmer has inside himself. Yes. Uh, Gunman is clearly a great story played out and a great parody of a, a another story played out really nicely. Yeah. This should be in the favorites. It's got all the series 1 guests apart from Robert Bathurst coming back. It's it's wonderful. It's like a it's like a little warm bath. You yeah. can slip into. It. I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of pitched it as being the start of series 2. It's weird that it comes fourth yeah. episode in as well because it really is hidden in the series. Yeah, that
4: that's often if you've got a slightly mediocre one you can stick it out fourth mm. or fifth because at least people have watched half the series by the time they get to it, and they'll probably stick with it to the end. It must be so irritating as a writer if you've spent all of this time making sure everything lines up and resolves beautifully and you know has been building slowly, and then they go, right, we're going to make number four number one. You just go, oh, God. What does that do to an actor? Like
3: As, a, as an actor yourself, Like we've, uh, John and I have done some actings, but I don't think we've ever been in that privileged position where you get to... Explore how to build a character out of order
4: across a long time. I'm uh, I'm blessed enough to have only ever been once and done, um. So, okay. so even in my own things that I write, they they're all anthology. So we, you know, record once, get it done, move on. Nice. Um, Do you not have a yearning, I, a hankering for development? Oh, yeah, no, not development. No, God, no, that's the worst. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, uh, it it must be a different job when you you're you're told that your character is going to have this arc over, you know, whatever it is, 6, 12, 26 episodes. Mm. And you might film them out of order, and then the scenes within those out of order, and keeping track of y- who you are. Um, uh, I worked with uh, Rape Spall, I've worked with him a couple of times actually, but he said something that I thought was really interesting, which was, if we have a role in this at all, it's being custodians of these characters. It's their job to protect the character because that is what people come back for.
3: That's really interesting. And,
4: and, it, and it's so easy for the character because it's so ephemeral, such a, such a delicate balance. It's so easy for character to go missing and to start saying things and doing things because we don't have time to think about it that then get broken. And, and that's when the audience doesn't know why they don't like this show anymore. But they don't like it anymore. And so actually, you know, I'm, I'm all in favour of if an actor is good at what they're doing, they should be able to throw their toys out of the pram if they're not being listened to. I completely agree with you.
3: But on the other side of things, on the production side of things, it is upsetting when an
4: actor says, my character wouldn't do that. 100%. And especially in a comedy. Because often the reason you're doing it is because it's funny, and so it's your job to find a reason why that's truthful, just not the, the other jokes way around. And wolf, yeah, yeah. No, I totally. Um, you know, and I have experience of actors doing that on on shows and just killing laughs. You know, Oof. yeah. Oof. So it's it's a it's a balancing act, like all things, you know. But I thought I thought that was interesting because definitely in the later series of this, characters are. S- they become caricatures of themselves. They are not. They don't have the same uh, rigidity as they did in the first six series. I, I think
3: you know? uh, Chloe Annette's a really interesting case study. I think she's very funny, but they did her the disservice of trying to replace Rimmer with her and wrote a funny part of her characteristics in after the fact of her already being on the show. They decided, ah, yeah. what will make her funny is if we play into her neuroses of geekery and being very uptight. In a different way to Rimmer, and she was already on screen by then.
4: Yeah, and being very, um, being very sort of middle class as well. I mean, that isn't who Lister was in love with. Like you know, that she's obsessed with Jane Austen world and having a quiet evening to herself or whatever in um, ducked soup or what you know, any of those. Like she's quite pampered, and Claire Grogan is like just you you understand why without them ever having to explore it through scenes you understand why lister is in love with that woman yeah someone he can go he can go toe to toe with and yeah absolutely yeah. yeah yeah so they basically lose the romantic possibilities i think with the recharacterization with chloe annette
3: given that you watch balance of power as well let's yeah. talk about the romance between kachansky and lister and the timing of it let's say when lister and kachansky are flirting in series 1 episodes 1 and 3 yes was she already married to evil twin beard lister no i, I she can't have been no it would for me that would justify her relaxed sense of like it's almost like Arrogant flirting she's doing with him. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, yeah don't, yeah. don't worry about it. We're already together. You just don't know it yet.
4: <laughs> oh wow. I mean, no, I've never thought of it in that in that way. I, I think it it's too creepy. It's like Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail, where <laughs> as soon as he discovers their true identities, he then keeps it to himself for a while so he can toy with her. Like it, <laughs> that's not romantic. I think it loses nope. something if if that's true. Um, yeah, it's the halfway point. I just really like their energy that they're just two people who just look into each other's eyes and they mm. there's so many stages of dating ahead of most yeah. other people. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. And you then, see her
3: going to Fiji. You could see Claire Grogan going to Fiji. Yeah,
4: on a, on a whim. Because if you, if she can marry
3: that beard, I'm sorry to keep going back to it, but, <laughs> blind her, but Aside from the, the logistics
2: of it, I think this is why it's not held up as a classic, this episode, because it doesn't give us what we want. I don't no. think it's not, it gives us a happy ending for Lister in which we're not going to be at all invested because we just think, oh, right, well, we're going to watch five years worth of plot. At some mm-hmm. point, then he's going to grow a beard and then he's just <laughs> and going to come As soon back as he's time, shaving the sides, we're like, it's yeah. coming. Exactly. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to travel back in time and it's all going to work out. Yeah. And, you know, that's not, it doesn't happen, obviously, but. It's also not satisfying. It's not what we want. I don't think we're invested no. in the longing and the lot, and it just it
4: takes all of that away to think, oh well, it's going to be fine then. I agree. I mean, showing the end without a twist um, before you've got there uh, yeah, it, that's exactly. very hard yeah. to play mm. in a satisfying way. And where's Cat gone as well? That's worrying. Yes, uh, he disappears uh, when the Kuchansky yeah, yeah. and uh, there's no double double cat. Lister and Rimmer are still hanging out for some reason, but Cat's mm. gone. Oh no! Yeah. Oh no! I don't we know, don't know what Cat's lifespan is. I to wanted be fair. to talk
3: about Cat in this episode. He doesn't actually have anything to do in the episode story-wise, but he no. is incredible in this episode. The repetition of what 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 is it that David you mentioned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 stole that's, that he thinks is strangling. Uh, yes, oh, that's beautiful. She, she does the most extraordinary extra background artist work. By the way, <laughs> do you check. Her out during that scene, because yes, she's like some, she's 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 in a loony tunes cartoon. Oh my! And runs off. Um, who's eating? Then who's? If I'm, I am not me, mean, who's eating this chicken? Like yeah, so yeah. much good stuff, but none of it a part of the action.
4: <laughs> but it's truthful to the character. He's never met people like that. His his journey is that he gets to see women for the first time. And he doesn't know what to do. For all, he's got this Lothario energy. That's a fascinating insight mm. into Cat. I think. He's a sad show. Lister yeah. is up for sacrificing his
3: life to be in love for three weeks in this episode. Yes.
4: But, yes. but then he's so human in that a moment later when he realises that that isn't possible and you know, does his great speech, and then she opens the door, and the light of hope comes in again. And then he, with a rubbish beard, walks out of the bathroom. He, he's going through the rollercoaster, <laughs> but he's so human by his reaction to seeing he does get the girl in the end. His reaction is F- that guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's so it's not it's not a it's not a hero's reaction. It's yeah. it's a it's a comedic character's reaction, and that's why we sort of we feel for him more. I think. They both know it. Um, evil
3: Beard yeah. Lister does still shout. I love that you call him evil.
4: You... I don't know why no, no, they're no, no, no. evil.
3: It's the beard it's that's for... evil specifically.
4: L- l- oh, double exactly. Double
3: rib- <laughs> Rimmer and Lister. Neither of them are necessarily immoral. I just mean uh, they are sporting what is traditionally in sci-fi seen as, oh, that's a red flag. That's facial. Oh, and yeah. No yeah, offense yeah, I to your the... very fine mustache, but it's very different to a pencil Thank mustache or, a, or an evil twin goatee or in the case of Dave Lister in this episode, just whatever that merkin has got stuck to his neck and chin.
4: It's yeah, gotta be evil it's, an, it's an odd sort of, it's a beatnik beard he's he's sporting, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, that's it. It's quite jazz. Yeah, okay, um, that's it. Yes, it's a jazz yeah. beard. He's wearing a jazz beard. It's a jazz I'll beard. I'll no longer
3: refer to it as an evil twin style beard. It is from now a jazz beard. Very nice. Can I lay some hot, geeky facts on you? Please do. Lister and Rimmer live on floor 2583. I worked that out with maths. The size of Red Dwarf, um, and thank you to Red Dwarf Nerd on YouTube for these measurements. If you cut the ends of the ship off to make pretty much a hexagonal tube. Dwarf's smallest floors at the top and the bottom of that hexagon cover five and a half square miles. The bigger ones in the middle cover about 11 square miles. So the average floor size is around 8.5 square miles. We know that there are at least 2,583 floors, so a total floor space, and yes, we can subtract some of this for engines and storage, but still, the total floor space on Dwarf is a touch over 22,000 square miles. That's twice the size of Wales. So it's no wonder they upped the number of crew members uh, in later series, because 169
4: <laughs> is not enough people to inhabit two Waleses. They've got two scutters to help out. To <laughs> That's true, but they're often in the cinema. There's A, a lot of it is diesel decks, to be fair. <laughs> Through which you can go on a trek, apparently, if you wear later That's it, yeah. Right? And I love that a spaceship can be still be powered by diesel. That would be... It. <laughs> <laughs> the diesel decks. Yeah. Does your maths um, account for the size of Lister in the opening uh, crawl when he's painting the outside of the ship because he does not look like he's on <laughs> two waleses on the outside of the...
3: <laughs> In terms of the interior floor space. Okay.
4: So oh, I see. we're not talking okay. about volume. Okay, I see. I we're see. talking about the amount of ground right. you could walk. Yeah, your footprint. On. You your for footprint is two waleses. Wales and... Okay, got you. Um, really, PD is a is a pretty petty punishment. Is, isn't the pettiness the point? How else are you going to punish someone?
3: The other the other form of punishment they have on Red Dwarf is to make you not exist for three million years. I mean,
4: that's that's no well, I don't think that was their intention. But um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, to not exist for a couple of weeks. Yeah. you you smuggled a cat on board. You, I am going to make sure you outlive me. Doesn't add up for me. Um, <laughs> now, I I think that opening crawl though of him painting this vast, uh, ship with no portholes, um, is is for me is is the concept that they 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 move away from, and actually it's probably testament to it that they knowingly move away from Red Dwarf as well to Starbug, as well. They purposefully yeah. lose the ship because the mm. ship is vast and sad, and <laughs> Starbug is the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> so they can be a bit more fun about it.
3: I still think it's a comedic episode. I think existentially it's absurd, yes. right? It's absurdist. Yeah, almost. to be painting the, the, the... something
4: that large on your own. <laughs> hmm.
3: But also to be in an infinite prison. Yes. That is a contradiction in terms, right? And and But that's where he well, is. Well, I love the end of
4: the original Crichton episode where his setting off into the sunset is to borrow uh, Lister's bike and just head off into Red Dwarf where they the, the <laughs> implication is where they may never see him again, because <laughs> it's so big. Um, that's that's a far more sci-fi idea than it is a space opera idea because it's haunting. It makes us uncomfortable, <laughs> and that's the difference. I think ultimately is that sci-fi makes you go, "You ever question this little comfortable part of yourself?" and and space opera goes, "What if you could kill with impunity?" Wait. What if there was more comfort? What if the stuff you felt uncomfortable about was actually fine? <laughs> you know that's what That's the gift of Star Wars. Um, they've got helmets on. Kill them.
3: It's just interesting, the little thoughts that occur to you that, that I'd f-
4: completely
3: forgiven and ignored or forgotten about when I was a kid, that now I just have a moment of going, oh. They'd die if they went backwards through that, but oh no, they don't because one way it's a split screen, the other way they fade in. And as a kid, I was like, "Why do they fade in if it's a door?"
4: (laughs) Trying to trying to pass the magic, but that's it. Like there's mystery to it still, you know. But they're alive when they go back through because they are of the future, I guess. I mean, it'd be a strange episode if when they walk through into the past, they turn to powder. And then they just rolled credit. (laughs) End of the show. (laughs) End of show. Lister and the cat are now powder. Rimmer's standing there.
3: This is definitely a Lister episode, but it feels like Rimmer is the the object of the episode, as it
4: were. He had lemmings as a pet. (laughs) That's just, it's such a joke line, because it makes no sense, it doesn't. is it? You can hear the the studio audience laugh as soon as he mentions it, because they know where it's yes. going. Oh, there's a few of those. Um, he, he gets a few of those. The the audience actually tread on a couple of punchlines, don't they? And he's not telegraphing necessarily, but it, we, we know enough to know what that joke is. Yeah, Everything Leaves Him is the broad titles. And then he mentions he had a pet lemming. Okay,
3: okay. You're bringing it upon yourself to an extent. Or maybe his parents forced a lemming on him as a pet to teach him that lesson, which he has clearly taken to heart.
2: I built him a little wall so he could hurl himself off
3: it. It's just wonderful writing. It's hurl, hurl himself off it. The, the writing, I'm sorry, can I also bring up the line, you ripped up and ate a photograph of his wife. Just out of context, that line is, is yes. so funny.
4: I love how they describe the escalation of of uh, Rimmer's madness that is so much better than if you'd actually seen it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very
3: yeah. true. Uh, there's some nice prop work and, and seed planting. Rimmer and Lister, uh, sorry, Lister and the cat have a chat next to a fancy dress party poster.
4: Anyone spot right. that? And then the next scene you get Hollister in a chicken costume. Yeah.
3: Well done. Right.
4: Well done set design. Yeah, I don't think I've ever noticed that and yet I've never questioned why he's dressed as a chicken. Right. Never questioned <laughs>
3: I mean, there's always the chance that Rimmer hallucinated this whole thing in some kind of Jacob's Ladder scenario. Hey, there's a get out. Clause <laughs> there you here. go. What Do you have a favourite uh, scene or moment or line from this episode?
4: I think it's got to be the cat. The cat's what is yeah. it is sort of my, my favourite joke of the thing just because it's so... I mean, it's not even beautifully the characters because Lister and Rimmer calmly explaining something whilst the child doesn't get it. But it's just, it's just beautiful. And we get four as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the rule of four. Uh, but I'm then Lister's speech, because I think it's uh, in the corridor, because it's pure. Although I love the suitcases line as well. Now I'm saying it, just like oh, I bet they've sent him to the wrong bloody airport again. You know, just that is... It's it's, it's Douglas Adams, isn't it? It's pure Douglas ah, Adams. It's a sort lot of like... Douglas Adams. Although yeah.
3: the, the, the scary robot staff with the silver faces, that seems to be taken directly from THX 1138, right? Right, yes. They look identical to that. Unless, yeah. I kind of, first time I saw it, I was like, oh, they must have just inherited some props of Doctor Who. That looks very
4: Doctor Who. Sure. But I think it might or, be or it's different. just like, that's what you do when you've got no money. You know, just maybe that's head. what it is. <laughs> yeah. Silverhead in a tuxedo. Silverhead. Turns out if you've got no money, everything's terrifying.
3: <laughs> Can we loop back to that kick in the balls? Because I remember it being really yeah.
4: good. And I was really a bit disappointed
3: that I play a out, And I don't really understand why either. You see the after, You see the beginning of it, awkward cut, and you see the aftermath of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't. What was what was going on there? Do you think did they did the Beeb bee go? It will encourage people to knee each other in their chicken costume. Balls. I
4: don't know. Sometimes it's just what they they feel it does to the feel of it. I've heard that other great sitcom writers, you know, um, have had great debates about on-screen violence in a comedy setting because you know if you're if you're Rick and Aid, obviously the slapstick is part is baked into your world. But I know that um, Jesse Armstrong had long conversations about violence in peep show because these are, these are sort of real characters, you know. And when Jez is kicking his uh, Mad Andy uh, to therapise him uh, because he's asking him to and he's just kicking him on the floor in the balls and stuff, what you show is really important because it changes how you feel about the person committing the violence. So I don't know. I'd have to see the the kneeing in the chicken's
1: balls. <laughs> again.
3: Is there not an, a, a
4: a potential that a possibility?
3: Sorry, that 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 late twentieth century sitcom was psychologically violent enough, psychologically cruel, the characters to each other, that that they didn't need actual punching and kicking to to. to to leave the audience bereft in that sense
4: yeah I mean it, it's a funny thing isn't it because these things are frozen in time in stasis if you like nice. from the, the the day they were filmed and yet now in a world of streaming services they are they can be as present as something that was made last week you know and so the, the, the audience changes but the, the show doesn't and so that's why these conversations are constantly being had and you know often wrong decisions being made or right ones being made. I mean you don't want you don't want people to sit there and go, oh, at the end of your <laughs> episode, you know. But I I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm I'm broadly in the camp of leave things alone and let people make up their own minds. But um but I, I'm from the generation where every T V edit um or aeroplane edit completely butchered a film. So yeah, I'm just thank like, goodness oh, they're not doing God. that
3: anymore. Blimey. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to mention that Holly was in love once.
4: Oh, with a is it a ZX Spectrum? Yeah.
3: Incredibly yeah. timely reference. And I don't know, I think it sparks the imagination. Why would the ship's computer be programmed to be able to fall in love with anything, let alone <laughs> an early
4: 80s keyboard? Right. Computer, I sort of love how specific the references are at this period in it. Like they had no idea this would ever be shown again. Like There's a line Ooh, right, at the end it, that, it? I to this day, I don't think I understand what it's about, which is when future Lister in the hotel is closing the door on our Lister. And he says, you're, at some point, you'll end up in 1985 or something. You'll want to go to the theatre. Yes. Whatever you do, don't go see Run for Your Wife. And he closes the door and you're like, what? <laughs> and it was just a famously bad play at the time but it's like, nobody remembers a famously bad play from the no. mid-80s. I could not name you a famously bad play now. I mean, it it, fam- it became a famously bad film starring Danny Dye. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. One star yeah. across the board, wasn't it? I yeah, mean, the, yeah. the clue's in the title, right? But it's such an interesting choice that that is where Lister talking to himself is left. That's the last thing they say to each other. Like, it's like that <laughs> important. But clearly
3: he had that bad a time at the theatre. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. That, um, do you not think it's maybe he was it was a final goading of Lister? Like Lister yes. thinks he's about to hear something important and actually it's 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 what old Lister did to Rimmer in way back in series one, episode two. Come closer,
4: come closer. They do revisit later, not in plot terms, but in term just conceptual terms, of Lister and Rimmer become assholes. Because future Lister's not he's he's a bit of a dick, isn't he? Yeah. You know? And and they revisit that, you know end of series six, is it? Out of time, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. And it, it, yeah. it is a,
3: a pretty extraordinary. It must be five, because six, I think, ends with Rimmer kicking death in the balls, which is...
4: Oh, no, that's seven, I think. Is that seven? Oh, blimey, okay.
3: We're well, lovers, not experts. Uh, apologies, listener. Do we think that the despicable future end of series six... Rimmer and Lister and Kat. Do we think that's the same Rimmer and Lister that we see in Well, that's Stasis what I'm sleep? questioning, you know.
4: They've been in deep space a long, long time by that point. So I don't know. I mean, the Lister Kachansky happily marries can't be an, uh, a brain in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true.
3: Although I could see Rimmer getting that indolent. Oh, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. But I love the comb-overs and the massive bellies and just the... We're used to the best the universe has to offer, sort of aff- attitude of just like, oh God.
3: I wonder if at the time they'd known the show would run for another like on and off fifteen years,
4: that they might have been a little ke- more careful about that characterization <laughs> and the facings. Frankly, I, th- I think what's missing from the new ones is that they're not, um, Roth of carning it and acknowledging as much as they could in a in an actually sad and yet poetic way about what it's like to grow old without your circumstances changing. You know. Like Wrath of Khan is everyone's favourite one because it's it's punctuation on the series. It's not just another movie, right? It's, you know, it's one one more one more go at this out into the great beyond. And it's what they did so brilliantly in the most recent series of Picard as well, by just doing the same thing. But writing it really well. Um and yeah, but they haven't done that. They just still sort of... They're still on the treadmill, just going around. Nobody's mentioning it, you know? Because I, I feel like Rob Grant is the one who liked the sadness, and he's gone. So, it feels like that. Yeah, it feels like yeah. he's certainly the pessimist, maybe. Pessimist, but humanist. I think he's the novelist, you yeah, know? Right. And Doug Naylor's a gag writer. Like It's why I think the bits that work in the new stuff the best are cat scenes because they're just monologues they're just stupid routines (laughs) and they and they're sort of joyous like it's there's no reality to it. it's not grounded but they're just little fun sketches but anyway i don't want to jump ahead for john really it's all just tantalizing to
3: (laughs) me i think we've successfully gone through this episode line by line scene by scene and then there's very little else we could talk about right we could probably talk for another few hours but we've taken up so much of your time already david thank you
4: so much. no it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to, uh, to get to wang on at length about a show I love. And I can't wait to hear everybody else wang on at length about it um, in yeah. other episodes.
3: That was Mr. David Reed. Thanks for the memory, David. Yeah, and what a classic episode of a podcast. Thank you to Mr. Reed. I am a little disappointed, Oh, yeah, I was wearing this delightful T-shirt all the way through the episode. And neither of you said nothing.
2: Oh, that's because you've covered it up with a fetching checkered shirt. I, that's I Craig Charles on your that's chest. That's Craig Charles
3: holding a bazookoid. Amazing. <laughs> with the number 25 written on it. And underneath it does say, let's get out there and twat it. It is the T-shirt is that, very that shirt? I mentioned all the way back in Guy Kelly's episode. It was a birthday present to me from my lovely wife. What a cool thing. Amazing. Uh, this is the only circumstances in which I think I can wear it. Recording a Red Wolf podcast. It's
2: probably good for just watching an episode on your couch, right? Do you change for the telly? Put it on for the
3: <laughs> I like to dress as the characters, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love this T-shirt so much more than I, I thought I would and, and, and did as a, t- as a teenager. It's like, oh, you're, that's so uncool. Wearing a thing that lets people know that you like a thing. <laughs> but um, now I'm, oh, I'm fine with the things I like. Yeah. I'm doing a podcast about them for crying out loud. Exactly. Yeah, it's not.
2: Yeah, that you you're well past the gateway
3: drug of a T-shirt at this point, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, what's right. What's the twenty five oh, yeah.
2: a reference to? Was that like an anniversary special re-release or something?
3: I bet. I bet there's a cooler reason. You know, in Aliens, they all have like cool things written on their helmets and and and, and right. guns, like adios and and cooler things than that. Yeah, listener, if you know why. Dave Lister has 25 written on his bazookoid. Yeah. Maybe there's a rack of 30 of them he pulled out the 25th one. Yes, if you know the answer. but If there's a better, different reason. Email us. Yeah, let us know. At than pod
2: at gmail.com, as the wonderful Sam has done, to share a moment that means a lot that we didn't really talk about in uh, Thanks for the Memory last week. Ooh. Yeah, a brilliant bit of Thanks for the Memory, that wasn't mentioned on the pod, was when Rimmer was desperately trying to make the oddities into an alien message. Paraphrasing, it hurts like hell, it's below the knee, there's two of them.
3: so good. And then... How do we not mention that? I know,
2: it's mad, isn't it, that we didn't talk about about this, actually thinking about it. Especially given how much we love Rimmer's crazy alien conspiracy theories. Oh, so good. (laughs) Sam points out how it's almost thrown away in the delivery, in the jigsaw must mean you. There's no logic behind it at all at that point, but he just needs it. He needs it to mean you. So, oh, the jigsaw must mean you. It is great. It's really well set up, that gag. Um, Obviously, to make hello to you from uh, from the aliens. And, um, yeah, it's only in the final seconds that we realise the jigsaw actually does reference them because it is a jigsaw of the Red Dwarf. And we didn't mention that either, the fact that the jigsaw is actually of the ship. Oh, yeah. For goodness sake, what kind of podcast are we?
3: <laughs> a reasonable one because it is an unusual, it's a weird one. The, the, pu- the puzzle is a photo of the end of Red Dwarf, the front end, I think. It shouldn't be a puzzle. It, mm. uh, is, it is only that because that's the first moment of the end credits sequence. So it's kind of putting the cart before the horse a little mm. bit to say no, that's what it meant because actually it, they were doing that because it would look cool, right? Rather than it being a, mm. huh? it is you that, or it's just all deliberate and they're geniuses. Oh yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. To be fair, they made it. They made it a real puzzle. They didn't try and kind of superimpose yeah. the shot onto a blank puzzle and yeah, try right. and make that work. Yeah. They actually printed this, so they they they. They did go with that aesthetic
2: yeah they're committed to this bit yeah they did sam you're right to say that since we didn't mention it you thought you'd write in and you hope we like it and we do like yeah, it. yeah so really you. do loving the podcast sam also says oh, that's nice. um, i have to read that bit out because it makes me feel warm inside yeah
3: thanks sam that's very nice and we love you
2: listening sam and we love you writing
3: in as well yeah and 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 reminding us of jokes that we didn't mention yeah
2: So I think we've now thoroughly analysed, thanks for the memory. Surely there's nothing there. certainly thoroughly analysed Stasis League. Oh, yeah, can't go any further than that. Next week, (gasps) we've got a thoroughly analysed Quee. With Sarah
3: Mills. That's going to be amazing.
2: Yay. See you there.
1: (laughs)